I told my mom at one point, I feel like my first cancer, which attacked my back was like World War One. My second cancer, which attacked my knees was like World War Two. And this one's a human rights violation. Welcome to Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. Some of our subjects would like to be named. Others would like to remain anonymous. Today, we'll hear from someone who'd like to be known as Wonder Woman. Why? This will be clear very soon. And by the end of this story, I think you'll agree, this name is a good description. I used to play such a dork. I used to play the Wonder Woman theme song from the 70s in her satin tights fighting for our rights. I was like, I thought it was the funniest line. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go save the world, you know? I also was a volunteer at a cancer camp, which I grew up going to, and my name at camp was Wonder Woman. So that was part of the reason for having that to be my theme song. The chapter of my life right now, cautiously satisfied. Now let's dial that back because one of the things I want to focus on is your survivor story. I don't know if that's how you think about it though. Do you think about that Um, part of your life in that way? So if we're talking about my cancer history, I really think of that mostly as my childhood. That's what it was. And one thing my mom, I'm going to get choked up throughout this. So just bear with me. Absolutely. We have all <laughs> one the thing time that you need. My mom always said to me as a kid with cancer, whenever I would get um, down or say things like it's not fair, she would always say, you never know what the next person is going through. And I didn't realize how true that was until I was older. And um, I, so to tell a little about my cancer history, I was first diagnosed when I was eight years old. Prior to cancer, I was a ballerina. My mom was a ballerina. My dad was a gymnast. I was in both. We were also Mormon and we went to church every Sunday, quite religiously, (laughs) no pun intended. When I was diagnosed, I couldn't go to church because everyone brought their like sick kids to church and I couldn't be around all of the, you know, common illnesses because my immune system was dead. So stopped going to church, couldn't dance anymore. The cancer had eaten away at nine vertebrae in my spine. So I had nine compression fractures in my spine from the cancer. I was in a back brace in a wheelchair. So I couldn't dance, couldn't do gymnastics. And so, yeah, that was probably my first big change in life. How old were you at that time? The first time I was eight. And then I got into remission and I was coming off chemo. We had an off chemo party. I was, I think, 10 and a half, 10 years old. My mom sewed this beautiful dress for me. They were going to take me out to dinner for my, to celebrate but it wasn't just dinner. We actually went to my elementary school (laughs) and like the whole 
neighborhood was there. <laughs> Not only that, but Tim Noah, who's like a local kids musician, was there and he walked up and I was like all shy because I had a big crush on him at the time, you know, <laughs> probably my first celebrity crush. And then two years or a year and a half later, my knees started hurting me. I would hyperextend my knees and fall down in agony. I was relapsing. Took a while to convince the doctors that I had relapsed. I think my doctor just wasn't ready to admit it. You know, he was like, no, she's supposed to be cured. She's fine. Took a while to get people to listen to us and do the right tests. And the second time it didn't really show up in my blood work, like my, my white count was still up and they didn't find it until they did some bone scans and bone marrow aspirations to test. That was a huge change because I was 12. And you know, when you're a 12 year old girl, you're trying to be pretty and fit in and you know, you're right at that almost teen stage where you're trying to kind of establish yourself and all the all the uh, different school groups and whatever. So that was a big change. I also had a tube in my chest called a double lumen Hickman line at the time. I had that clear up till I was 16. So gym class in junior high was a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> I actually had two good friends that were in my class and they would stand on either side of me while I changed so nobody could see my tube. <laughs> Those are some good friends. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are some good friends. How did your parents or did they, did your parents, um, how were you told the first time? Do you remember much about when you were eight? The first time I was in my hospital bed, I was really sick the first time because it took us a long time to figure out what was wrong with me. I was my mom's crazy kid and I was lethargic all summer. And she was like, something's wrong with my child. I also, my back hurt all the time. And um, we would go over a speed bump in my mom's minivan and the just the bounce of the speed bump would cause me to um, get the wind knocked out of me. So I, you know, mom, don't go over the speed bump too fast. I'd brace myself or lay flat on the, on the minivan seat as flat as I could, you know? So, um, I got hiccups one time. It knocked the wind out of me. I fell, fell to the ground. And then my dad, you know, he was trying to cheer me up. And I told him, don't make me laugh. It'll hurt more, you know? So that's, that were the, that, those were the indicators of the first diagnosis. The second time it was in my knees and I knew immediately that I was relapsing. It, I, I've tried to explain, it's always affected my joints. And I've tried to explain the feeling of it but it comes from the middle of the bone, basically, for me. It's different for everybody. But if you've ever hit your funny bone real hard or hit the tips of your finger real hard and kind of resonates through your bones for a second or five, this is like a constant resonance like that. And it doesn't go away and it's nauseating. When it, when it really hurts because of a jolt or something, it really does just knock you over. So th that was my experience the first two times. I went into remission after the second time and I was doing great. I was nine years in remission and I just entered UW at Tacoma and I already had my associate's degree. I was ready to, you know, finish my bachelor's and go out and save mm -hmm. the world. I was doing scuba diving. I was dating this guy that I was pretty sure I was going to marry and all these things, you know, is the beginning of, you know, that young life. And I was supposed to go on a semester at sea through UW Tacoma. It was 
it was going to be the very first semester at sea from UW Tacoma. I was all enrolled. I, everything was paid for. I'd paid it off before it even happened. And I walked up to the professor and it was a female professor and I handed her a withdrawal slip <laughs> and she was shocked. She looked at me, she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm not sure yet that something isn't right. My wrist had swollen up to this, and it, but it was like a hard swell. And I didn't know it was wrong, but it hurt and it ached and it had that ringing sensation that I knew was a relapse. So I argued with doctors for over a year, actually almost exactly a year when I first went to the doctor and said, I know I'm relapsing. And I was told that I was being paranoid and I was told that, you know, there's no possible way you're nine years in remission. There's no way you're relapsing all this. And so I ignored it. I'm lift. I was so buff at the time, in such good shape. I could lift an air tank over each shoulder and march down to the beach in my scuba gear. And I very well could have snapped my wrist and they would have had to um, amputate my arm. And so why did you ignore <laughs> it? Because it sounds like you knew. I ignored it because everybody else told me to, basically. There was so much negative. And I was only 21. You know, when you're 21, you don't have all the gumption that you might when you're in your 30s or 40s. And I was pretty bold even at 21. But when enough people tell you, no, that's not happening, you doubt yourself and you stop listening to what's right for you. So especially at 21. <laughs> right. And so this is your third round. This is my third diagnosis, second relapse. And I finally got it diagnosed after fighting with people for a while. And I, I am very proud that I demanded certain things. There was one point I was sent to get a bone scan and, you know, they, they squirt like glow-in-the-dark bone stuff into your veins and so they can see everything and um, they wanted to just scan my wrist but they had already done a bone marrow aspiration on my wrist and a regular bone marrow aspiration through my um, back of the hip. They signed me up for this bone scan and the lady doing the bone scan says oh no we're just doing your wrist today. I was like hey no we already know it's in my wrist. The reason for the bone scan is to make sure that it's not anywhere else in my body. So luckily this time it was low it was localized to the wrist and it was considered a possibly a secondary cancer and they diagnosed it as a lymphoma. So being that it was not a full-blown leukemia and a but rather a lymphoma, I've always considered it a secondary cancer, probably from previous cancer treatments. So we went through a lot of like, how do we treat this kind of questions and like wanted to do a full bone marrow transplant. And I was like, no, <laughs> you can, you know, treat me, but I'm not, I, I pretty much knew that I would die if I had a bone marrow transplant. What, what about that situation? I'm wondering about <laughs> your relationship with doctors and with the system at this point, <laughs> having been through this a while, what do you think it was that made you so assertive in your care? So I had told everyone after probably when I was about 18, I will never do chemo again, but I did. I was lucky that I, at the time I was still on my dad's insurance, thank God, because he had really good insurance. 
we talked to the insurance and they allowed me to go back to my pediatric oncologist who had treated me the first two times. And he worked out a specialized protocol. It was the first time I had radiation. It was very localized just to my wrist. And we did a very light dose chemo. There's certain chemo drugs that you can only have a certain amount of before it starts shutting down internal organs and, you know, other parts of your body. And I was like, I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to have my family watch me go through that. Well, you're speaking up for yourself in ways that, so on the one hand, you know, as a 21 year old, you're saying, well, I didn't have the gumption that I have now, but I think you showed a lot of gumption in participating in your treatment. Once it was diagnosed. Yes. But like I said, I did ignore it for a year because everybody was like, there's no way, you know, I hated being told that I was paranoid. (laughs) Do you think part of you wanted to not be sick? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, oh, it's our, it could be arthritis. It could be, you know, Mm -hmm. so many other things. So yeah, part of me definitely, but deep down I knew, I knew right away as soon as I felt it, but yeah, it took, took quite a while to convince others to do what I needed. So let's go back to the first time. So you were sick in the hospital. Mm -hmm. How did your parents or the medical teams, how did they approach you as a child to even tell you what this was or what the implications? I was really sick when they finally got me to the hospital. I think I mentioned it. It had been summertime and I was pretty lethargic. My mom took my younger sister in for, I think, an ear infection and I was with them and she convinced the doctor to do just a blood test. She she thought she might be anemic. She's like the tiredest kid I know. And she's usually my most active kid. They do a blood test and not even a couple hours later, the doctor called and said, meet me at the hospital, bring a bag for at least two nights. They did a, my mom is really good at telling this story. It's very dramatic though. <laughs> I was in the hospital and they went to do a bone marrow aspiration because my blood count was so low, but it wasn't a hospital that was used to doing children's bone marrow aspirations. And they used an adult needle on an eight-year-old child. And I am not like a screamer. I'm not normally afraid of needles or anything, but I was screaming through this procedure. At first, both my parents were holding my hands and then my mom had to excuse herself. And she said, as soon as she got out of the door, she laid right on the, right on the floor of the hospital because she knew she was going to pass out. And she was like sweating and the floor was cold. And she said, she just laid there. And then a nurse came and made her sit on a bench. (laughs) Well, wait a second. You're in a hospital. There should be people to take care of you. At that point, had anyone said the word cancer to you? Did you have any awareness of what cancer was? Yeah. So my um, paternal grandmother had passed away from melanoma. So I knew that grandma had died of cancer. And when my mom came in after that bone marrow test and told me that I had cancer, my first question was, am I going to gra- die like grandma? And she said, no, they they have really good treatments for kids. And you know, I'm sure she was just beside herself trying to explain this to me, but uh, I was lucky. I had one of the best pediatric oncologists you could ever imagine. And um, in fact, I think he even follows me on Facebook now. Like, <laughs> he's just a great guy and couldn't, I wouldn't be here without him. 
without um what do you think that relationship um did it change your relationship with your parents at that point i mean you were eight so i don't know what you can remember from that i think so i i would say yes my mom and i i was her tough kid i wasn't you know, my brother was really easy before me. I was a lot more rambunctious. I would, it's, <laughs> I was the kid that in the stroller would scream from one end of the mall to the other, and there was nothing she could do about it. I think we, we learned to appreciate each other. And one of the things she told me later was that, and I don't think she meant this like in any way other than knowing that I was of strong character, that it was probably best that it was me than any of her other three kids because she knew that I would fight it. I'm sure she meant that in the most loving way. Um, yeah. Cause that, cause that's a very, I mean, that's a, that's a very tough thing to actually admit to another person. Yeah. Or have a thought of as a parent, but I understand now how she meant it. And, you know, I understand her thinking process on that. So yeah. I'm not mad at her about it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, she's really, she's showing you her vulnerability in a way that if you hadn't had this experience together, you might not know anything about. Yeah, true. Yeah. So did you feel fear or did you feel comforted when you were told, you know, that there were great options for kids at that time? Did you there still was... feel fear? Yeah, there was always fear. There was always fear and a lot of it, I mean, my family's really comedic as well. So anytime things did get like stupid or scary or just downright rough, there were always jokes flying around, really bad jokes, <laughs> but there were always jokes flying around. And to this day, my dad and I, we will riff off each other in some of the worst ways. And other people look at us like, wait a minute, <laughs> is that okay to say? Or they'll even look at us like, wait, she's your daughter? How are you talking to each other this way? But, and that's, that's just me and my dad. I, I don't, I know that like my other siblings joke with him, but I don't think on the same like gritty level that he and I do. <laughs> But he was also the one that would stay with me in the hospital so that my mom would be, could be home with the other kids. So he saw me through a different side of it than my mom did. And after that first bone marrow aspiration, he was always the one that held my hand for bone marrows and spinal taps and, and all those things. We played a joke on my youngest sister once. So when I went bald the second time, my brother shaved his head, my dad shaved his head. My youngest sister was a little bit of a hellion, but only when mom wasn't around. So she'd like scream at us. And so we one day just out of the blue told her that the reason we were all bald were, was because we were aliens and we'd been away from the mothership too long. And event and she was the only human and the only way that we were going to survive is that if we ate her at some point this is terrible right so we went on with this it's hilarious probably a good year or so she was like four or five and um it came to a head and we stopped telling her this and we like admitted that it was all just a big story one night when it was dinner time and my dad yelled down the hallway Hey girls, it's dinner time. Bring Elise. And she ran and locked herself 
behind two different doors she locked and we had to coax her out we were like it's a joke we're never gonna eat you like you know (laughs) (laughs) so trauma so yeah so but it sounds like such a loving family you know to really it was we we actually never told my parents that story until we were having like a big family dinner and my youngest sister brought it up I think probably at Thanksgiving and I was like oh I forgot about that and so we had told my parents the whole drawn out story and they were like what Coming, do you think that coming through this experience changed you in ways regarding risk? Do you think you take more risk or fewer risks? It's definitely made me take fewer risks. Coming um, out of my um, bachelor's program, I had the opportunity to go to Africa, but I was also just coming off chemo. And part of the program was to work with AIDS children. Compromised immune system and not quite sure, you know, how the insurance situation would be if I did get sick over there. I ended up not doing it. And human rights work was really all I wanted to do. I ended up staying in the States and ended up getting married. And I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> well, it's a different kind of risk. Altogether. It's definitely a different kind of risk. I see that now. <laughs> what about, um, how do you think of time? Do you think I've survived this, so I have all the time in the world? Or do you think I have a limited amount of time. I need to get a bunch of stuff done. No, for a while, I had the limited amount of time attitude, definitely through college and my first, my first career job right after my bachelor's degree, I got a master's degree. It took a year and a half for me to complete. And then I got my first career job and then got married and you know did all those things and i was in a rush to do it in a way moved to the deep south followed the guy married to the deep south and did that whole experience that was a quite a change <laughs> i met so many great people in that experience is eye opening in so many ways i was somewhat prepared for it but i wasn't prepared for all of it for sure how do you feel now in terms of, do you feel like you're aggressively pursuing life um, or do you think you're kind of going with the flow? How, how I think you- for a while there, um, after my divorce, after moving back here, I was definitely going with the flow and I was, I was struggling a lot. It was right after you know 2008, 2009, I lost my first career job, which was with a nonprofit and I was doing bone marrow recruitment and my focus was largely minorities. So I feel like I got a lot done. I was really proud of the work that I did down there and then laid off right after 2009. I went with the flow, but almost in like an angry way. <laughs> and there was a lot of things to be angry about, you know. How do you feel about medical care now? So for example, do you go for regular <laughs> checkups? Do you go for cancer screenings? Are you kind of your own boss when it comes to that? I don't go to the doctor unless something is absolutely wrong. First of all, I don't think they're going to listen to me anyways. I haven't had a primary care physician since maybe 2014 when I when I left my health insurance provided job. <laughs> and I have had insurance. I had decent insurance for the last 2 years since my uh, new position started and I still have not found myself a primary care physician. 
Okay. I need to. I just turned 41. And the last time I did go to the doctor, <laughs> funny story. Do you want to hear it? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was mushroom foraging with some girlfriends and we interrupted some kind of hive of some type. And I was the only one that got bit or stung or whatever it was, but it got me on my side butt. I was in pain and I gave it a few days and it was just really, the, si the side butt one was really swollen and red. So I finally make an appointment for this walk-in clinic and I go in and of course the doctor that I see is like this gorgeous salt and pepper hair man that just like screams sex appeal. And I'm like, great, I have to show this guy my ass. He gives me this whole lecture about, you know, you just turned 40, you should really have a primary care physician. We have no like history of your health and all this. And part of the reason he brought that up. And I think when I do find a primary care physician, I'm not going to put all my health history on the initial paperwork because every time I see a new doctor, they freak out and they don't listen to what I'm saying in the moment. They want to concentrate on my eight-year-old, my 12-year-old, and my 21-year-old self. And that's not what I'm there for. So I think- I, I can appreciate that. So they, they are looking for much bigger problems than what you're describing. Yeah. And- It's ironic given that you were the one that told them the second and third times what was yeah, going on. Yeah, isn't it though? <laughs> Doctors really frustrate me. I also have- PTSD from cancer. I was diagnosed with PTSD the first time I think I was about 16 and my mom and I were clashing again. And um, my shrink told me part of the reason you're clashing so hard is because you're too close. You know to each other way too intimately and you both need to back up. And, you know, some of this is post-traumatic stress. You guys really need to be mindful of that for each other because we were diagnosed with PTSD at the same time. Both of you. So, and both um, related to what you went through. Yeah. Do you tell people this story? Uh, not as much as I used to. I tell it sometimes online because mm -hmm. something will come up that I feel like it's valid to give this background. I'm wondering, does it change your interaction with the people who you tell it to? I think that sometimes when I do tell it to people, they're either afraid to get close to me or they put me on a different level and don't get close to me because I'm on a different level. Not, be, not necessarily because they're scared of me, but they've got me up here when really I'm right here in front of you. Those would be the two differences that I see. Does that make you hesitate to tell your story? Yes and no. If I think someone could benefit from my story, I will tell them about it. How would you um, like how would you like people to benefit from your story? Now, my perspective would be when I was doing the bone marrow recruitment stuff, I actually would speak to a lot of nursing classes and I would always start with my story, tell them why it's important for me to recruit new marrow donors to the registry. Yeah, so when I'd be speaking to nursing classes, I would say, listen to your patients. The doctor's not always going to. You are going to have a more intimate relationship with your patients, and you need to listen to the things that they are telling you, because they know their bodies better than anyone else can. So 
you know, someone comes to you and says, I know I'm not supposed to be relapsing. I'm no, I know I'm supposed to be cured. Listen to them. And if the doctor isn't listening as a nurse, you have that ability to speak with him or her and really get a better dialogue going on behalf of that patient. That is one way. Another way is listen to your body. Listen to your body. You know yourself better than anyone. If you don't feel like you know your body well, take a minute and do some relaxation breathing and really kind of connect with yourself. Your best survival chance in life is to really know yourself inside and out. You know when you feel well, you know when you don't feel quite right. Listen to yourself and be able to communicate that to the people who can change it for you. Everything in life, if you're not happy in your job, you need to be able to communicate to the people who can help you change it. And that's probably the biggest thing I've learned in my 41 years. (laughs) You're so generous. You've really told your story well and with great detail and humor and resilience. And I think the kind of impacts that you're talking about are exactly the kind of impacts that we can have when we tell our story. How does that shape you then going forward? I really think that if I hadn't gotten cancer, at least the first time, I definitely wouldn't be the person that I am today, but I probably would have been in like pageants and just not, you know, just absolutely opposite of what I am now. I'm very down to earth now. I I think I've always had an imagination and I've always had a sense of care for humanity. My mom said, even when I was a little, little kid, like I cared about other people. I would worry about other people. But now I have this big humanitarian heart I don't think it would be quite there if I hadn't experienced these hardships. You mentioned earlier that your mother said to you at a young age, you know, to think about other people. What did you think she meant by that? And how do you think that influenced you? I think she meant that everyone has hard things to get through and to say it's not fair about whatever it is you're going through means that, um, you're not recognizing other people's hardships. And, you know, you might think she's prettier than you over here. And you might think that's not fair because you're bald right now, but you don't know what it's like in her home. Did that give you a sense of empathy that you carry forward with you? Yeah, eventually. At first I hated it when my mom would say that, you know, I was like, just let me be mad or whatever, you know. (laughs) Definitely after my third relapse, I started really recognizing that because I was meeting other people at an adult age who were, who were actually ready to talk about the shit they went through as kids. I remember I had a neighbor shortly after I came off chemo. I guess my hair was longer at this point and I was probably officially off chemo when I met her. She was looking through a photo album and saw all of my bald pictures and she started crying. <laughs> but she had told me, and she was she was like, I'm so sorry you went through this. And she was very like, God, just, she just couldn't comprehend what I had gone through, but she had expressed to me abuse that she had gone through as a kid from her mom's boyfriend. And I can't imagine that. I always tell people like, you know, this is something I 
had to go through. And the one thing that I'm grateful for about having childhood cancer is that no one did it to me purposely. There are other hard things that people go through and people purposely did that to them. No one purposely did that to me. How are you doing now? I am uh, cautiously satisfied. I think I always kind of am waiting for something to happen. <laughs> um, not necessarily even cancer, just there's always things that jump up in life, but I'm very satisfied with my career right now. I'm happily single and not even bothering to look. <laughs> and I have a horde of nieces and nephews that I absolutely adore. But yeah, I'm, I'm really content. I guess I'm just satisfied to have kind of a normal time right now. Well, I appreciate you. And I thank you so much opening up about this. Um, hopefully it will be a great deal of help to others. You know, you never know whose lives you're going to impact. I know you already have from your, all of your good works that you do every day and, and your kind of your legacy over time of service and nonprofit and, and using the tools that you have and the influence that you have and, and creating those connections through empathy. It's all really very strong character. I think your mom and dad are right about you. You're, you're very strong and, um, and beautiful and beautiful. And thank Aww. you so much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. We help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation. Thank you.